animal from the program, um, I think the more hope there would be for having an amenable outcome to that. That was Danielle Hanash, Executive Director of LEAP, Leaders for Ethics, Animals, and the Planet. They're a 4-H alternative for students who want the experiences and education that 4-H offers in the agriculture sphere without the killing. As always, you can read more about this program in the case of Cedar, the 4-H goat, by following the links at the Voices for the Animals episode page at kboo.fm slash Voices for the Animals. You'll also find a podcast of this episode there as well, and we invite you to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And that'll do it for this episode of Voices for the Animals. I'm Michelle Coppola, and until next month, be kind to animals, to others, and most of all, to yourself. Morning, everybody. It's Friday morning, and thus time for Film at Eleven, the weekly panel show reviewing recent films on both the small and the large screen. This is DK Home, and this week I'll give a quick survey of some recent additions to cinema streaming. Then turn the reins over to Jeff and Matthew for more offerings. Ava is another movie about a paid assassin whose bosses turn on her, in this case, Jessica Chastain. This is a cliched plot, which is really about addiction, but she and the other cast members raise it to a higher level. The cast including John Malkovich, Colin Farrell, and Gina Davis. And director Tate Taylor manages several welcome visual flourishes. HBO's Bad Education is not the school comedy its title suggests, but a true crime tale about a high school principal who built his institution for several millions to finance his secret life. He is a fascinating character whom Hugh Jackman brings both charm and steel to the part, with Allison Janney as the accountant who takes the first fall and Ray Romano as a key school board member. House of Hummingbird, which last time I looked is part of the Kiggins Virtual Theater, is a poignant story of a 14-year-old student in Korea in 1994 and a harsh look at her terrible home life with an angry father and a bullying brother, among others. Her various friendships and boyfriends are transcended by, a, uh, by guidance from a Chinese language teacher who sort of befriends her. The year is significant because it is when the Songsu Bridge collapsed. By coincidence, both Madness and the Method and the Cut and Chop are about actors using the method Cut and Chop is negligible straight-to-video horror porn, but the other is directed by, and stars, Jason Mewes of the Kevin Smith movies. And in a Smithian way, for a while, captures some of the comic paradoxes 
of show business before it becomes essentially a horror film. And finally, the assistant is writer-director Kitty Green's look at a day in the life of a personal assistant to a Weinstein-style movie producer. Ms. Green usually makes documentaries, and there is a quotidian realism here that is enhanced by Julia Garner as the increasingly shocked and disgusted main character. The best scene occurs when she attempts to complain to human resources about the situation, and instead they charge her with jealousy and other uh, matters. The complaint thus goes nowhere and the day ends. So that's a few movies that are just right now available on streaming and elsewhere. But now let's hear from Matthew from Kabu's Gremlin Time on what he's been watching lately. Well, thanks, DK. Uh, Doug's given me quite a bit of time to fill, so let's get started here. I've got a bunch of things that I just kind of want to cover for you. Let's first start with some features to look for, some things that are coming out, and uh, just a little bit to uh, I want to point out, too. Um, you know, DC has got to try, and, or at least Warner Brothers, they're trying to kind of pick up ground because of the uh, pandemic. They were unable to release uh, Wonder Woman 1984, which was going to come out uh, last spring. And so it looks like that's going to be coming out soon in the near future. No real date set. But uh, just looking at the trailers and stuff, I just again, it just seems to be uh, the problem with the DC films, they're too much reworking old ground from other movies. I mean, in this, it's almost like their version of Winter Soldier in the same way that the original Wonder Woman movie had a lot to do with the Captain America, the first Avenger. Of course, set in World War One instead of World War Two. But here in this movie, it's also set in, in uh, Washington, D.C. And then there's someone from the hero's past who's come back to life. And it just seems kind of too much. I mean, why do we have to have the guy back? Can't Wonder Woman stand by herself? Uh, also coming out is a Batman movie. I'm just, I'm sort of waiting to see how this turns out. I mean, they, as I say, they just keep reworking stuff from previous movies, and they don't draw that much from the comic books, uh, which are the original source material. It looks like they might be adapting the Batman series Hush, which was uh, really pretty good, and it came out a couple years ago. I uh, just hope they make Batman a little more flexible and that we focus more on just Batman doing this stuff as Batman and not trying to, like, go back over the origin or stuff like that. So those kind of look interesting, but as you know me, I'm more interested in the animated features. And one that is coming out right now is Superman, Man of Tomorrow. Breaking news, an unidentified object heading towards Earth was detected by Star Labs. Look, up in the sky. Why are you here? Why are you here, Kryptonian? This planet is protected, alien. It's ass whooping time. And that was the alien space bounty hunter, the main man known as Lobo. So who knows why he's come to Earth? 
So this is kind of an interesting. This is Superman, Man of Tomorrow, which I found sort of interesting is that the way they're drawing Metropolis is almost like the way they used to draw Krypton back in the day. And, you know, it used to be Superman came from this advanced civilization to Depression era uh, Earth or then, uh, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s Earth. But now it's like Metropolis is almost the city of tomorrow with uh, Superman, the man of tomorrow. So this is kind of a, I would I'd say it's an origin in a way, but it's then sort of Superman year one. But of course, the animated producers, they know how, they, they recognize the characters and they work that out. And so that's one to look for. I, I believe it's going to be streaming soon. And that's uh, Superman, man of tomorrow. Also, I want to... Uh, point out that uh, there's coming up some very interesting things from the DC animated producers. Uh, next year at this time, there's going to be Batman The Long Halloween, which was a, a nice series from a year or so ago, and that's going to be animated by next August. Coming out this spring is a movie which I'm going to have to admit gives me a renewed uh, will to really fight this pandemic and stick around, and that is a movie that's titled Justice Society World War II. And so that's the golden age group of superheroes that DC had. Uh, World War II, I mean, just the title alone, I want to see what it's like. So there's some things to look forward to for next year, hopefully when we get out of all this mess. And a final thing to look forward to, which was the trailer which I thought was really delightful, and that's Enola Holmes starring Millie Bobby Brown as Sherlock and Mycroft Holmes' younger sister with Helena Bonacarter Carter as the mother Holmes. Now, where to begin? My mother named me Enola, which backwards spells alone. And yet, we were always together. And it was wonderful. She was my whole world. Which leads me on to the second thing you need to know. A week ago, I awoke. Mother? To find that my mother was missing, and she did not return. I'm presently on the way to collect my brothers, Mycroft and Sherlock. Yes, Sherlock Holmes. The famous detective, my genius brother. He will have all the answers. Enola. Where's your hat and your gloves? Well, I have a hat. Just makes my head itch. And I have no gloves. My God. A wild woman brought up a wild child. Who will make her acceptable for society? She seems intelligent. Uh, this is coming out from Netflix. Uh, and it just looks delightful. A really perfectly cast movie. Henry Cavill as Sherlock Holmes, who's more of a sort of supporting character in this. But he's more of like these kind of original image of Holmes that people had back when uh, Doyle was still writing um, Sherlock Holmes stories, kind of embodied by uh, William Gillette, the actor. And so it's more Holmes by himself without so much Watson in this. Because, But it's more about Enola, delightfully played, as we can hear here, by Millie Bobby Brown. And so that's uh, coming out from Netflix, Enola Holmes. There are two paths you can take, Enola. Yours or the path others choose for you. It is time to find my mother. The game is afoot. Okay, let's switch now to a, a disc that's come out, a Blu-ray, this time from Shout Factory. And this is a classic horror movie, one of these sort of overlooked movies because it's kind of overshadowed by movies in its same sort of subgenre that came out uh, afterwards. 
Uh, the other week we talked about Rosemary's Baby, and this movie is in that same vein of devil cult worship horror movies like The Exorcist, uh, The Devil's Reign, The Omen, The Seventh Victim, The Night of the Demon. And this movie is The Devil Rides Out. Rex, do you believe in evil? As an idea. Do you believe in the power of darkness? That's a superstition. Now there you are wrong. The power of darkness is more than just a superstition. It is a living force which can be tapped at any given moment of the night. Christopher Lee stars as a Count Richelieu who uh, investigates these things and he's called in his friend Rex, an American friend, to help his nephew who seems to be fallen under the influence of a sort of Aleister Crowley cult leader uh, played in this movie by Charles Gray, one of his great performances. You remember Charles Gray was the narrator in the Rocky Horror Picture Show and other things. Um, this is a pretty interesting little made movie, uh, and it's one of the last of the sort of great classic Hammer films coming out in 1967. They did more upgrading of uh, things. They tried to make it more towards a young audience. Uh, Unlike other Hammer films, this is set in the 1920s as opposed to the Victorian age or contemporary times. So there's lots of like old cars and biplanes and uh, great costumes in this. And so um, this is from a novel by Dennis Wheatley, who used to be very big in England, but never really caught on here in the States. The screenplay, though, is by Richard Matheson, whose work seems to constantly kind of come resurface and be reworked even to today. So it's a disc from uh, Shout Factory. There, is, there are two commentary tracks and a whole handful of little featurettes about uh, the impact of the movie, the background, the making of, and all sorts of stuff. So this is a, a really nice uh, disc to pick up. And so this is The Devil Rides Out, Hammer Films, 1967, starring Christopher Lee and Charles Gray. And it is from Shout Factory. And so I've got one more thing to talk about, and this is streaming right now on Netflix. I've lost my home. I've lost my name. I'm no longer Richard of Bevanbar. How has it come to this? When the kings are dead, we will sit on Alfred's throne. We banish the Danes within our lifetime. Now, this is the series from uh, Netflix, uh, The Last Kingdom, and it's based on a series of novels by Bernard Cornwell, and they star Alexander Draymond as Uthridge of Babenborough, the uh, warrior who helps King Alfred the Great uh, uni unify England. And this is set back in the ninth century, and it's why, as uh, Cornwall uh, talks about his series, this is why Today we speak English instead of Danish, and so it was a very crucial time in history uh, when the Danes had invaded uh, England. And here Alfred is trying to unite the different kingdoms of England, you know, Wessex, Sussex, Mercia, and all these others, into a united England. And so it's actually a sort of a story about maturing. I mean, the hero would rather just be a Viking and go around, but he would like to get back his own kingdom that was taken away from him, but he has to serve Alfred. And so it's a way that it's about maturity and what you have to give up from your youth to be an adult. And so it's a very interesting uh, series. It's in its fourth season and it's just got picked up 
uh, for its fifth season, and that is The Last Kingdom. It's, some people call it Game of Thrones without all the magic and all the dragons and stuff. But it's- Where does it come from? This courage. It's, uh, there's some historical shabbiness in it, the costumes. I mean, why is everybody wearing the same clothes all the time? And why are there not fields to grow food around all the towns like they had? And then don't even get me started about the flaming arrows. Come on. But uh, otherwise, it's a very enjoyable series to watch. And that's The Last Kingdom. We also talked about the uh, Shout Factory disc release of The Devil Rides Out. Uh, Nola Holmes with uh, Millie Bobby Brown and Henry Cavill, which will be coming out. And look for Superman, Man of Tomorrow. Well, uh, let's see. I think that just about covers everything. Once again, look forward to Justice Society World War II coming out next spring. And uh, possibly the new Batman movie. Eh, I don't know. So uh, that's it for me now. And uh, we're going to get back to uh, young Mr. DK. Thank you, Matthew. Now, welcome Jeff Godsell, our Los Angeles correspondent, this week discussing the Wall Street thriller Boiler Room. It always amazes me when I discover a movie that's so good, so confident, and then I find out that it's from a first-time director. It's even more surprising when it's from a writer-director that hadn't really intended to go into movie making in the first place. This was the case in 2000 with Ben Younger's film, Boiler Room. Younger, a young modern Orthodox Jew from New York, had first desired a life in politics, becoming, at 21, campaign manager for Queens Democrat Melinda Katz, running for state assembly. He was the youngest in New York to ever hold that position, but as often happens, and to his credit, he became disenchanted and drifted away. Of course, he tried some stand-up comedy next, worked as a grip on some features, and eventually wrote and directed a short film. Then, in 1995, he went for an interview for a job in a brokerage firm. It was from that interview and the subsequent two years of research into the world of the telemarketing brokerage business that the screenplay for Boiler Room emerged. The only question is, who's going to close, you or him? You can be whoever you want to be on the phone. I'm 46 years old. I have 22 years of market experience. The whole place is going nuts. Well, you see, we deal in stocks that really move. I am your kid's college fund. Yes, my first account, baby. You're one of us now. This kid is really good. Okay, he's going to go down hard. Dicey at best, these firms can be flat-out illegal, running a pump-and-dump, duping unsuspecting investors toward worthless stock, artificially inflating its demand, and then the brokers take profits before the stock plummets, leaving the investors unable to sell their shares and losing their entire investment. Somebody tells you they got money problems? Wrong answer! No! I want my money back. I'm sorry, Harry. I can't do that. Watching these young hotshots work the phones and fleece their clients, Younger knew that he had his movie. You're destroying people's lives. I want to get out of the firm. I don't care what you do anymore. Just get out of here! Boy the Room stars Giovanni Ribisi as Seth Davis, a 19-year-old dropout from Queens College, who's doing all right anyway, running a casino out of his apartment near the campus. None of this endears him to his father, of course, who also happens to be a federal judge. One day, Seth's cousin brings a friend into the casino who convinces Seth that he ought to try making some real money. Do what he does. Become a broker at an investment firm called J.T. Marlin. Seth agrees to attend a kind of orientation meeting where it's all laid out for him. 
him and a dozen other fresh-faced, greedy young wolves, in a killer monologue by Ben Affleck. You have to be closing all the time and be aggressive. Learn how to push. Affleck makes it clear that in the world of J.T. Marlin, there are the guys who make millions of bucks, and then there's everybody else. But you got to earn it. Which one are you going to be? Anybody who tells you money is the root of all evil doesn't have any. Affleck's monologue is so good that his performance has been used by Affleck haters as proof that he really wasn't acting at all. Whatever, for about four and a half minutes, Affleck rocks. Seth joins the ranks, and we start to see a day at the office. The killing floor, where all the cold calls are made and the money starts to come in. It's not Wall Street. It's a business park in Long Island, maybe just far enough away to avoid scrutiny, for now. Writer-director Younger does a terrific job of showing the ins and outs of this scam in broad daylight, and of this highly competitive, testosterone-driven bunch of white suburbanites in Brook Brothers suits. The soundtrack for Boiler Room, featuring Cl Slick Rick and the Notorious B.I.G. and others, reinforces how hip-hop and black gangster rap has influenced these white boys' culture. How trading bogus stock is like slinging crack rock. When Seth first sees the rows of expensive cars in the J.T. Marlin parking lot, he says, These guys were macking it hard. One of those guys is Vin Diesel in a performance that makes you wonder... Maybe he really has been wasted in all those Fast and Furious movies. This is Chris Marlin over at J.T. Marlin. This stock is blowing up right now. The whole firm's going nuts. Hold on, let me open up the door to my office. <laughs> See that, Doc? Give me the 2,000 shares. Done. Eventually, Seth sees through the facade of the firm's success and how much real damage is being done to his unwary clients. Writer-director Younger nicely ties together Seth's moral awakening with his need for reconciliation with his father. Ribisi is at his best in a scene confronting his father, played by Ron Rifkin, in the judge's chambers, where he hopes to enlist his father's help in bringing down J.T. Marlin. Boiler Room ends with a satisfactory, if not explosive, ending, but remains a remarkable first film. It did not go unnoticed by Martin Scorsese, who, while preparing The Wolf of Wall Street, had his cast and crew watch Boiler Room. Scorsese went on to be executive producer for Younger's third film in 2016 called Bleed for This, about boxer Vinny Pezienza. Boiler Room from 2000, available on DVD and free streaming on OK.RU. This is Jeff Godsell for Essentials of Cinema, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Jeff, and do be sure to visit Essentials of Cinema online. Finally, let's talk about the new volume in the BFI Film Classic series on Touch of Evil. One of the first things you have to get past is Charlton Heston's cultural appropriation of a Mexican identity, a Pan-American narcotics detective. But once the modern viewer deals with that, they will discover that Touch of Evil is still relevant as, as it explores, in the words of P the late Peter Wolan in 1996, when a longer version of the film was released. Seeing Touch of Evil again today, nearly 40 years after it was made, I am struck 
by how amazingly, if depressingly, alive and topical it still seems in its treatment of the Mexican-American border and of racism and police corruption. And that holds true now, even a few more decades later. The quote comes from the new BFI Film Classics volume on Touch of Evil, written by Richard Deming, a Yale creative writing chief and poet and literary historian whose books include Art of the Ordinary. The quote comes in the notes at the back, and the entire monograph is perhaps the best single introduction yet to this Orson Welles film from 1958. The book is divided into five parts. Part one is, there's a, there's a preface that positions the film in the author's, the writer's life. And then chapter two, Noor's epithet gives a general history of film noir and the issues that genre raises, followed by a scene analysis that focus, focuses on the opening sequence of the film, a many minute take that crosses the border from a Tijuana-type Mexican town to an American city. Chapter 3, Characters and Themes, analyzes the moral ambiguities of the story. And Chapter 4, Final Stages and Legacy, focuses on, first, cinematographer Russell Metty, and finally, the amorphousness of the three extant versions of the film, where he states, while for some, the question of the significance of the three versions might be of primarily archival or historical interest, there is an additional level to the fact that the three versions coexist. The fluidity of the film's very ontology plays into its thematic exploration of boundaries and interrogation of what counts as the sorts of decisive experience by which good and evil might be weighed. Throughout Touch of Evil, he also writes, the intimacy between Charlton Heston and Janet Lee is perpetually deferred. As we will learn, Lineker, the victim, is killed because of his own efforts to keep his daughter, Marcia, and her Mexican boyfriend, Sanchez, apart. The parallel between the two couples is taut. He also concludes that Wells uses realism not mimetically, but rather as a mode of involving the audience directly. In doing this, Wells blurs the boundaries between the mode of expressionism, uh, I'll add a characteristic of noir, and the mode of realism. Realism, um, I'm adding, is the principal mode of major Hollywood movies in the 50s. The book's only flaws seem to be that he confuses neo-noir with what is really film soleil. So apparently he did not read my book on the matter. So, but then again, sadly, he also relies on the observations of two of the worst Wells biographers, David Thompson and Charles Higgum, the latter of which proffered the fear of completion theory of Wells. Now, the movie currently is uh, viewed at its best in the 50th anniversary edition from Universal, a two-disc set from 2008 that includes all three versions of the film, along with numerous extras, a commentary with Janet Lee and Charlton Heston, 
a commentary uh, with producer Rick Schmidlin, two features that come to about 40 minutes, the theatrical trailer, and then two more commentaries, one by FX Feeney and one by Jonathan Rosenbaum and James Naramore together, two of the best minds on Wells and his films. But perhaps the best feature is the 90, excuse me, is the 58-page memo from Wells to the studios. A memo that Wells wrote to the studio after seeing the producer's version of the film. Some of his notions were adopted, such as about dubbing badly recorded voices. So now, Joseph Cotton, on his first appearance, sounds suspiciously like Wells. Deming recreates what it is like to watch the film, and he has a knack for a description, such as when he describes, quote, the coldly bristling but doomed Marion Crane from Psycho, also played by Janet Leigh. Which brings me to the point I want to make, which is the film's interesting links to Psycho. They're startling. Not only does Psycho also display Janet Lee in her underthings, she also stays in a motel, run by a thin, nervous man who blushes over the word bed. One new thing I learned from the book is that the set designer for the motel in Touch of Evil also designed the Psycho Motel. Both films also share Mort Mills, here as a DA and in Psycho, the scary highway patrolman who questions Marion Crane. Is there any significance to this beyond the general crossbreeding of films in a closed system? Probably not. Hitchcock has borrowed images, they all do, and the shower scene in Psycho may indeed have come from The Seventh Victim, a film produced by his close friend Val Luton. Even the bug-eyed death of Grandy the villain may have been borrowed by Hitchcock for a later death in Frenzy. The uses to which Hitchcock puts the images are also to different purposes. In Psycho, for a tale about the bitter yet almost funny tragedies of daily life, while Wells is making a love story, as he did in most of his films. A love story between two men. Just a side note, the suit that Orson Welles wore for the movie is on display at the video shop Movie Madness in Portland, Oregon, and at some point, if you're curious, you might want to try and take a look at it. So, what can one say about Touch of Evil? It is some kind of a film. What does it matter what you say about movies? Well, that's it for this week's Film at 11. We'll be back next week with more reviews from more people. Thank you. Goodbye. You're tuned to listener-supported community radio KBOO, Portland, Oregon, in the beautiful Willamette Valley. This month, besides being the season of Thanksgiving, here at KBOO, we celebrate Native American heritage. Tune in throughout the rest of the month for special programming hosted and produced by Native American creators as well as programming highlighting Native American, First Nation, Indigenous and Aboriginal cultures here on KBOO 90.7 FM Portland.
Hi, this is Cecil Prescott. Celeste Carey and I are the co-hosts for More Talk Radio, which airs on KBOO-FM 90.7 on 